Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hey, everyone. I wanted to talk about uh, sibling abuse and resiliency. Resiliency is about how people successfully meet life's challenges in the face of stress or trauma. And so it considers a person's strengths, adaptation, healing and wellness, self-efficacy, and competence. I've talked a lot about the risk and protective factors of sibling abuse for the child who's experiencing it and the survivor as they move through adulthood and the repercussions, right? We've talked about the enduring impact of the experience. And I think it's now time to talk about how those who have lived through the experience of sibling abuse um, tend to not overcome because you don't ever really overcome a traumatic experience, but you move through it. And there is the ability to adapt healthily uh, from trauma. So even though there are adverse effects in childhood, it doesn't always necessarily lead to adult pathology because um, survivors of trauma do escape some of the pain, but not the long-term hold that it has. But protective factors are the conditions that help people successfully negotiate trauma. And there are personal attributes that contribute to one's ability to be resilient, including one's temperament, intelligence, emotional intelligence, uh, coping skills, social skills, and the ability to regulate one's emotional experiences and uh, work on or manage one's self-esteem. But these skills also develop from psychological and environmental processes. So we know, or it may be obvious, that supportive parent-child relationships increase a child's self and family can also serve as a protective factor. Since family members directly influence coping skills and competency and social dimensions, they they also influence child and adolescent vulnerability and resiliency. So most of the literature on resiliency focuses on children, but resilience is achievable at any point in the life cycle. Some folks may experience a difficult event or period as a stressor, while others may perceive it as a challenge. Now, victims of sibling abuse can find it difficult to develop peer relations as children. 
and others are able to cultivate supportive relationships outside of their homes with peers or mentors, extended family members, or parents of friends. Most survivors, however, are unable to develop supportive relationships until adulthood, which they have considered imperative to rebuilding their sense of self. So I want to talk a little bit about the impact, the influence of creative outlets for children in general who are experiencing traumatic or or, or experiences that impact one's self-esteem. So ideally, a child should feel that he or she is a member of a cohesive family that's able to provide support in the face of life's challenges. Victims of sibling abuse don't have these supports in the home. And um, my study found that many children were not involved in meaningful experiences outside of the home that would have helped them develop a sense of competence or mastery and a sense of importance. When children are raised in abusive home environments and are generally not involved in activities that promote self-confidence, they feel a sense of isolation. Uh, Youth who cope with trauma through creative outlets are able to build a sense of belonging and competence. And these creative outlets not only provide emotional release, but also help sibling abuse victims establish a sense of community and receive much needed attention. So I remember speaking to one survivor who talked about uh, how Her parents identified her as the good child because they struggled with her sister's behavior. But Beth, that's the the survivor who was telling me this, she didn't reap any rewards from the status. Her parents didn't protect her from her sister's abusive behavior. And because she was the easy child, she survived by living under the radar. Her parents paid little attention to her. And beginning in junior high, Beth sought out theater, which provided her the recognition she needed. Another survivor also told me that she found that musical theater helped her to express herself and allowed her to have, allowed her to have a, a literal and metaphorical voice that she didn't have at home. Because there, her brother rebuked her when she expressed herself and he invalidated her opinions. But through participation in musical theater, she was encouraged to think creatively and actively express herself. So this experience developed her ability to take risks. Acting actually allowed her to try out different persona without personally identifying herself with any particular one. So the support and encouragement and acceptance from her peer group helped her to believe in her capabilities. She also found that her involvement in musical theater was a cathartic experience because it provided a purpose-directed outpouring of emotion. Now, supportive relationships with friends or caring adults and mentors are paramount protective aspects of resilience. As children, victims of sibling abuse lack emotional support in their home. Another survivor, I'll call her Isabel, related to me that having another home in which she felt safe and part of a family was critical to her self-preservation. She spent significant time at a friend's home from the age of 10 through college. And this friend had a close-knit family that welcomed her into their lives. Like uh, 
Beth, another survivor who felt taken in by her friend's family, she was envious of the way in which members of these families communicated. These extra parental adult relationships can promote a sense of competence in these children. So for example, Beth attributed her good grades in school to her friend's mother who helped her with homework. And so the ability of victims to find sanctuary with another family and feel accepted is a testament to their appeal and resourcefulness. Some childhood victims of sibling abuse find relief, uh, hope, and a sense of worth through their relationships with extended family members. Another survivor, I'll call her Tamar, spoke about feeling special when she was with her grandmother and aunts. Although at home she felt her parents favored her brother, with her relatives she felt preferred. And so she... Uh, made effort to capitalize on these positive resources by spending considerable time with them. And she conveyed their reparative role through her descriptions of their efforts to show interest in her life. Unlike her parents, they asked her about her friends, attended her sporting events, and helped her with homework. Um, Similarly, Ben recounted spending excessive time with his aunt, with whom there was mutual admiration. And even though he described her as nuts, she was able to experience genuine love and interest and felt a part of a family in a way that he could not experience in his own home. He had said that my aunt and uncle were good with the kids. That was a happy family, a place to have a good time. I really believe she saved my life. It was the only place I had comfort. So the stress coping paradigm is a way to consider active strategies people use to manage stressful life events that have the potential to affect personal growth, self-esteem, competence, relatedness, and self-direction. Survivors report that as children, they utilize various coping strategies to contend with the abuse, not all of which represent resiliency features. So for example, in an attempt to protect themselves, some victims would stay under the radar. They would either comply with their siblings' demands or calculate how to minimize a potential escalation of abuse. Others report that they tuned into the needs of their abusers. This is an aspect of the defense mechanism called identification with the aggressor that I discussed in, the, uh, in a previous episode on attachment theory. And this requires the victim of abuse to submit to the aggressor and replace his or her own emotional state with the emotional needs of the other. It's a compulsive compliance strategy that demands excessive vigilance and superficial compliance to the needs of others in in an attempt to ward off further trauma. This defense mechanism does allow for preservation of oneself from further or anticipated harm, but it also may result in risk for the abused sibling. From a resiliency perspective, the abused child is adapting to the trauma by developing coping strategies to prevent further harm. But from a risk perspective, the child who adopts these defenses is sacrificing a part of him or herself in the process, replacing one's own ego with that of another. In this case, the abusive sibling requires a a loss of self, and this inevitably leads to an internal construct of submission, compliance, and, in effect, inferiority. 
So as an interesting conceptualization, there are risk factors and protective factors in life. However, there can be conditions that present both risks and protection. So Lynn described her response to her brother's demands, which highlights this concept that I'm trying to um, convey. Although she didn't want to participate in activities with her brother, he coerced her and she gave in. And her contact with him exposed her to emotional abuse, but there were similar repercussions if she withdrew from him. He would taunt her relentlessly for not meeting his needs. So in an attempt to have an ally, she suppressed her own needs and tended to his. And she explained this by saying, I was always scared to make my brother angry. And I would always try to give in to do anything he wanted so that he wouldn't yell because his yelling was just the loudest in the world. Well, in adulthood, Lynn continued to fear intense emotions in the men she dated. In fact, she wouldn't become involved in a relationship if she could not read the emotional state of the other person. Mia also did this. She desperately desired attention. So she found a substitute family in a gang where she gained support and a sense of community. And even though she cultivated external resources in this gang, she did so resulting in the detriment of others and it was unnoticed by her parents. So these behaviors represented adaptations that put survivors at risk for even greater problems as youth. Now, in contrast, these survivors who, through design or circumstances, found protective factors such as supportive relationships with extended family members or parental figures or mentors who resided outside of their home environment, and yes, this evidenced resilience, the ability of victims to seek out and develop or maintain emotional connections reflects their strengths. So the idea of protective factors does not mean that there are not still long-lasting repercussions of the sibling abuse experience for the survivor. Well, let's talk about how resiliency in adulthood does show up. So given the potential availability of protective factors throughout the life cycle, resilience should be achievable at any point. Like I said at the beginning, many survivors who were exposed to high risk because of sibling abuse are able to attain competence, build community, and achieve success and generativity in adulthood. So let's talk about how that's done because one important aspect is therapy. And similar to parent-child abuse, sibling abuse causes children to lose confidence in their own abilities and worth. And the parental unresponsiveness to the trauma of sibling abuse causes children to lose faith in the accessibility and responsiveness of others, which creates an expectation that people are rejecting and untrustworthy. Well, the absence of validating experiences during childhood causes survivors to blame and denigrate themselves. And one researcher by the name of Doyle found that the most important single survivor factor for abused children is the presence of at least one person who made them feel important and provided unconditional positive regard. Well, both in childhood and as adults, this person turned out to be a therapist. When parents take victims of sibling abuse to therapy during childhood, the victims tend to think this means that the problem lies within them. However, at the same time, 
therapy is a protective factor because the therapist is someone who can validate the sibling abuse experience and help the survivor process that experience and help survivors develop the capacity to make decisions, engage in other relationships, and detach emotionally from the abusive sibling. Helping survivors make meaning of the abusive experience allows them to depersonalize their sibling's behavior and recognize the sibling as a person in their own right with their own problems, their own limitations, and their own struggles. Now, Beth poignantly captured the value of therapy. It enabled her to feel safe with her feelings in the presence of another person. The therapeutic relationship facilitated her ability to trust someone, and subsequently she transferred this confidence into her relationship with her husband. She said that before I started going to therapy, I was intent on being independent and never relying on another person. Now I'm able to trust my husband. Beth's description of her relationship with her husband is indicative of what we therapists call a corrective emotional experience. And this comes from the idea that a person internalizes, takes in images from others, including the manner in which others perceive you. And these interactions exert a strong influence over one's perceptions, including perceptions of oneself throughout their lifetime. So the corrective emotional experience that a therapist provides by consistency and suspension of moral judgments, in a way, reparents the client or the survivor. The therapist offers empathy, insight, understanding, and acceptance. acceptance. And the premise is that the therapist, having communicated a positive regard for their client, provides a reparative experience. The survivor identifies the therapist as a replacement caregiver and begins to internalize, again, right, take in the therapist's positive, genuine regard. The survivor learns new ways that people can respond to them other than what they expected based on their past. And so through this therapeutic relationship, the client has a new experience that doesn't include rejection. So, so important in healing. Another aspect of resilience includes career choice. This is really interesting because, curiously, many of the survivors that I have spoken with tended to work in the helping professions, particularly social worker counseling. Now, maybe this indicates resilience in adults who experienced abuse as children, but it can also be cathartic to help other people. By listening to the experiences of others may allow survivors to affirm their own emotional processes. So in turn, counseling others requires a high level of self-awareness, awareness of counter-transference, right, what we may project onto others. So it's important to really be mindful of what our stuff is so that we don't do that and we don't lead a client based on Uh, our own life experiences, which is essential for effective counseling. And counselors have to assure and ensure that their interventions and decisions are in the client's best interest and not based on their own comfort or familiarity, tough word, as related to their own life. So Talia, another survivor, didn't work in a helping profession, but Her fundraising career required her to manage large groups of people, and she reflected on how facilitation, the facilitation of group 
processes requires her to be aware of her own internal life and how others emotionally affect her because in turn, this affects how she relates to others. She said, I picked my work because I felt like that was going to be my way of learning how to be in a relationship with others. You can't facilitate groups unless you can be in charge of yourself and understand what's going on and what's going on in the room and how people are relating to you, relating to each other, and how you are relating to them. Every time I have to deal with a group, I see where all my shit is. It just pops up. There was one guy who was not paying any attention and was loud and just wanted to hear himself speak. So I had to learn how to manage my own stuff so I can be effective with the group and move them forward. So Talia's role working in a group dynamic replicates the therapeutic aspect of group therapy because her self-awareness served to astutely recognize her own dynamics within the group process in which she projected her earlier experiences onto the way that she related and responded to others. So how awesome is that? Through her work, she was able to not only develop professionally, but personally. And perhaps that's the common indicator, whether one goes into the helping professions or not. But of course, there are sibling abuse survivors in every field and profession. So I want to talk a little bit about family relationships in adulthood. It's human nature to want a close family. And survivors are no different in desiring to maintain a sense of connection to their family of origin, despite enduring strain with an abusive sibling or a parent. So some survivors choose to remain involved with the abusive sibling because they want to preserve a sense of family. And others choose to cut ties with their siblings or parents in an effort to achieve self-protection. And this is referred to an emotional cutoff. I like to refer to it as self-preservation because it's making a decision that certainly isn't easy in order to feel better with oneself. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't require mourning loss, the loss of a healthier family, the loss of closeness with one's own family of origin. It's incredibly significant, even though it's an effort towards safety and self-protection. So accepting that a survivor can't have the idealized or desired sibling relationship enables them to develop their own identity and begin the reparative process. Survivors who create distance from continuous assault on their ego are probably more likely to heal and reconstitute their internalized experience, while those who maintain connection to their siblings may be trying to get what they need from a sibling who's still unable to provide it. And this presents risk for projecting these needs into adult intimate relationships. For example, many survivors tend to seek partners who are emotionally unavailable because their desire to change the other person or gain recognition is met with frustration, disappointment, and self-denigration. Again, it's familiar. Obviously, the abusive sibling was not emotionally available. Beth told me that she chose to move across the country to begin a new life. She felt that establishing an independent identity required not only emotional distance from her family, but physical distance. She admitted that it was difficult for her to distinguish her sister's perception of her from her own. And so she felt that being 3,000 miles away helps her to have her own life. She also said that feeling entangled in the emotional processes of her family 
was too much to manage. So when her sister visited her parents for a holiday, they expected her to be there. And Beth's parents were disappointed when she would decide not to attend. But even though they didn't understand her need to protect herself from her sister's continued abuse, she felt burdened by their distress. And being unable to separate from their emotional responses, Beth gave herself the geographic distance that enabled her freedom to make her own choices. She felt that physical distance was the only way that she could establish emotional distance. And so for Beth, the risk that comes with making a major transition provided hope for a new beginning. Tamar also tries to break her brother's emotional hold on her. Her decision to cut off relations left her feeling lonely because she mourned the loss of their earlier friendship. She had said, it makes me sad that I have no relationship with my brother, and yet I don't want a relationship with him. It's been five years. He was dishonest and crappy, and I had enough. So even though she tried to safeguard herself, she had to contend with traumatic aloneness and find a way to mend the void. She claimed she missed her brother, like other survivors who stated they wished to bond for, uh, with their siblings. What she may actually have missed was an idealized version of her brother, one who treated her with kindness. So let's sum up some important protective factors that contribute to resiliency in adulthood. As in childhood, adult survivors find that meaningful relationships help them develop new connections that serve to replace the emotional nurturance one often relies on from family. And yes, others still struggle to build and maintain connections. As opposed to childhood and adulthood, survivors entered therapy on their own volition to address feelings of depression, isolation, intimate hardship, and family relationships. And in the process, they felt supported and began to develop a new identity that is separate and distinct from the one their sibling imposed on them. Many survivors find that reviewing past experiences in therapy helps them through a process of loss and mourning and facilitates their desire to move forward. I also spoke about how maintaining both geographic and emotional distance from family also serves as protective factors. Action-based changes to self-protect demonstrates survivor resiliency. The term survivor is significant. Living through trauma takes its toll. Risk and resilience and protective factors in adult victims of childhood sibling abuse potentially facilitates intervention and treatment methods. When we know what puts children at risk for sibling abuse, we can intervene and prevent the occurrence. When we understand protective factors, we can make sure that we create an environment within the family and outside of the family to ensure that children do not have to be faced with this type of abuse. What we don't yet know and needs to be studied is what creates aggressors of sibling abuse to begin to emotionally, physically, or sexually target their siblings and disturb a bond that's supposed to promote so many positive factors in relations to other people and in regard to one's self-worth. We certainly know that children who are victimized tend to victimize, but there is not enough data yet to really understand the emotional life of perpetrators. Again, 
We certainly know that aspects of depression, substance abuse, and mental illness can contribute to perpetration of sibling abuse, but there is so much more to be learned. However, understanding the risk and protective factors is essential to detection, prevention, and intervention. Sibling abuse is real. It's important. If you're a professional or parent, keep your antenna up. If you're a victim or survivor, you are important. You matter. If you want help, tell a school social worker or mental health professional or your physician. To learn more, you can find my published articles on my website at amymyersphd.org. That's amymyersphd.org. A-M-Y-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-H-D dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?